Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, traders, wherever you may be on planet Earth. We have the 75th episode of the Performante podcast. It is December 22nd in the final chapter of 2021, and we've got a jam-packed episode with you. We're going to be talking about the crypto recovery that could be going on, the rebound, as we have stories coming out of the Terra Luna ecosystem, as well as some multinational news from Pakistan and Russia. We're also going to be talking about how the Opera browser will be integrating with a new level two protocol, as well as some new ways to use your NFTs. We'll be talking about some of the problems that our favorite project has been encountering with its development. Uh, and last but not least, of course, it wouldn't be a Performante podcast without some shit talk about the SCC. And so without any further ado, my name is Nathan. I've got Keith here today. And uh, we'll just dive right into the first story. A huge story that's just coming out is Terra has become the second largest DeFi platform on the market in the crypto markets after Ethereum. And the price is definitely reflecting that hitting an all time high. And uh, this, I guess, surpassing of the Binance Smart Chain is according to DeFi Llama. And right now we have hit in terms of the total value locked for the Terra network. At just under $20 billion, it is currently sitting at 19 point, around $3 billion in terms of the total value locked for the Terra network. And Binance Smart Chain is third. It was previously second. And on the BSC, there is currently around $16.7 billion in the total value locked. So it's not even beating it by a little bit. It's definitely surpassing it. And in terms of the number one spot for Ethereum, we have the total value locked of 155, basically 156 billion for the Ethereum network. So we definitely still have a lot of ways to go in terms of the TVL on Terra, uh, the Terra Luna network, in order to get to that number one spot. But you do see it climb very quickly, very aggressively. And just for a little bit more context, Avalanche, which is also a very uh, well-used DeFi network, is currently at 12.7 billion in terms of total value locked. So it gives you a bit of an understanding of the overall layer ones. Solana, the last one we'll be going over, is at only 11.2 billion. We'll talk a little bit more about Solana in a later portion of our podcast, but those are the main layer ones that we talk about within our Discord, kind of around the community. And we do see Terra Luna really inching up to that number one spot, you know, already currently at number two, which is fantastic. And the main reason that we're seeing such a big inflow into the Terra Luna network is what we call, um, it's called Anchor, but it is really gonna kind of decimate uh, really any sort of stable sort of investment or um, like, a, like a bond or any sort of yield because right now I'm currently looking at the yield. It is 19.5% a year in terms of APY for the amount of UST that you'll get. And UST, if you don't know, is the stable US dollar in the Terra network and they have many other stable coins, uh, but UST is the most common. And right now, uh, we just talked about how the Terra Luna network has a total value locked of, let's say, just under $20 billion. The Anchor Protocol, just that Anchor Protocol itself, has over $10 billion in UST just within that single protocol. So you can see that this is taking over 50% of the total value locked just in this single protocol, which is unbelievable. But it shows you how much interest there is for stable yields in the world of um, not even crypto, but just where we are living right now. You know, bond yields are absolutely nothing. And the central banks globally, 
either have negative rates or very low rates. You know, in, in terms of inflation adjusted, they're all in negative rates, basically. So there are very few places that you can put capital and park capital in a stable asset, I guess, in terms of short term, like the US dollar, that's going to yield any sort of uh, positive against inflation, I guess you could say. It's inflation-adjusted negative unless you're going to be able to yield something like 19.5%. So that's why you're seeing a mass influx. And how this relates to the uh, the Luna price is in order to actually get UST, the stablecoin, you can burn Luna. So the more demand for UST, the more Luna that is burned, which reduces the supply of Luna. And obviously with a shrinking supply, even if you have the same amount of demand, the price is going to rise. And if you have increasing demand, uh, shortening or contracting supply, that's going to be a situation where you're going to get parabolic pushes to the upside, which we're currently seeing right now for the price of Luna. So big things to come for the Terra Luna network. We have been talking about it within our Discord. It is probably like $94, $95 right now. And I do think it's going to be hitting $100 by the end of this year. It's interesting seeing like the tokenomics and the DeFi mechanism within Luna kind of contribute to the positive price appreciation because it actually has been going up nonstop for months now. Absolute monster of a project. And I think it's one thing to note with these level ones is in instance, they all kind of have their each own their own accolades. So Ethereum, obviously the largest level one solution out there. Absolutely massive project. Uh, however, it's kind of downside right now is how bloated with fees it is. Terra Luna ha kind of has that stable coin staking. Binance Smart Chain, they have the most amount of transactions daily. Solana is kind of the dark horse with the developer activity leading the way. Avalanche has seen a lot of popularity recently. And so I think that each of these level one ecosystems is kind of getting its own critically acclaimed accord for what it's good at or what it's known for. And so to move on to our next story, we are going to be talking about a browser called Opera. Uh, it's, it's integrating some Web3 applications specifically with Polygonmatic. Uh, and this will also be available on the mobile ecosystem. And so basically through this integration, users who are using the Opera browser will be able to access decentralized applications like SushiSwap, Curve, and Aave because anything built on Ethereum can be ported over to Polygon. Uh, and this will also include things like OpenSea for you NFT degens or Decentraland for the Metabox weebs, or <laughs> not Metabox, <laughs> Decentraland weebs. And so ultimately it's like a big step forward in, in terms of actually operating and uh, heading towards that fabled adoption. It's kind of like when Google Chrome added the MetaMask extension, it's that just finding a new ecosystem of users. Yeah, definitely massive things. And it's interesting to see the kind of uh, shift from just specifically Ethereum, because I think that was majority where the market was focused on in terms of developer activity and stuff. But with ETH 2.0 not able to really fully launch for kind of the foreseeable future, um, I think a lot of entities are having to kind of pick a second option as like a backup if Ethereum isn't going to launch. And it kind of seems like, you know, different projects are picking different cryptocurrencies and different networks to utilize. But um, if Ethereum doesn't actually 
fully launch its ETH 2.0, like Polygon Matic is obviously on top of it, but um, it's interesting to see how the market dynamics will shift if ETH does inevitably launch ETH 2.0, we're able to have cheap, efficient transactions, and we're not going to have this bloated network effect where it costs hundreds of hundreds of dollars to basically either send or anything or to write a smart contract. It's just, you know, if you're in the crypto market, you definitely know. So it'd be interesting to see how that dynamic will play out once ETH 2.0 does actually launch. And kind of sticking on to the layer one focus, we're going to be talking about Solana. It uh, recently had a, another DDoS attack. It didn't actually get officially, or it, it did get taken down recently, um, but we've had seen, we have seen a DDoS attack on multiple fronts for the Solana network. And although it's unfortunate, there is some pretty good news here. I'll go a little bit in terms of the history of the uh, attacks that have happened so far. So in recent, uh, in recent time frames, uh, there has been a 17-hour, basically, uh, stoppage of the network. They completely, basically, took it down. Uh, it was an outage, I should say, would be a better term for it. And it required the collaboration of over 1,000 validators to overcome that DDoS attack. So it's definitely not a small one. And this time, more recently, we also got hit by another DDoS attack, which is a denial of service, a distributed denial of service, I believe it is. And although it didn't completely shut down the network, it did slow it down significantly. So in short, this isn't like inherently to do with the network itself. It's a, it's a bad actor or a third party basically attacking the network and clogging it up. And if you're clogging it up enough, it completely stops the network from operating. You can't transact within it because there's too many um, participants in the network, basically. But a lot of developers love Solana, very high out, uh, throughput. It has like 60, 50,000 transactions per second, which is unheard of. Um, you can't really get that anywhere else. And in terms of what the developers are saying, uh, Solana's runtime is a new design. It doesn't use the Ethereum virtual machine or the EVM. And there was a ton of innovation to ensure that users have the cheapest fees possible, which it definitely does. But there is still work to be done on the runtime. And as a little bit more of information here, the chief of operating officer of a coin exchange called EM or EXMO in the United Kingdom there, they said that the DDoS attacks or the denial distributed denial of service attacks and similar outages don't really influence the trust of the network. And he even states that it should be completely disregarded. Um, per his words, he says that investors are concerned about such hiccups. They should, or they would have completely abandoned Ethereum by now, which is you know, somewhat relevant. I don't exactly know the history of DDoS is on the Ethereum network, but you do see developers basically saying that it isn't an inherent problem with the network itself. It is a third party or a bad actor that is basically trying to negatively impact the market for their own benefit, whatever it may be. So at the end of the day, it's not like the developers are fucking up. They're trying to manage the bad actors that are attacking them in short. Yeah, I think it's really put Solana in the spotlight. I mean, every time I go on Reddit, it feels like there's a different thread trying to shit on Solana. And so maybe they are encountering some resistance with their project, but I'm a big Solana fan. I'm bullish on the ecosystem, but the centralization and how much absolute power is basically had to be exerted by the central entity within the span of 2021 is relatively concerning in a technology space where decentralization is highly valued. I mean, at the end of the day, devs are still building on it. This network is also still in beta. 
And so I'm not going to say hiccups are expected when something's in beta, but it's called a beta for a reason. It's not, it's not meant to be a full launch. And so maybe people are forgetting that, but ultimately it's still not a good look for Solana within the public spotlight as the, the owners of the project are having to reel it in with various updates, offline time, et cetera, et cetera. And so to move on to our next story, we are going to be talking about the new way to leverage your NFTs. There is a platform called Arcade, and they allow collateralized loans against your NFTs. Uh, they recently raised $15 million in a Series A funding round uh, with some big names involved from various VC firms. Uh, and ultimately, they, their current value proposition is that the lack of infrastructure in, or the lack of infrastructure in DeFi prevents NFTs holding from achieving liquidity on their holdings, despite massive market caps. And so, just for like a specific example, CryptoPunks are one of the OG NFTs, and those can cost literally millions of dollars. And so, I think that's kind of the niche that this company is looking to dive into where people can use those NFTs to access liquidity and ultimately contribute to the DeFi ecosystem, but with non-fungible tokens rather than the fungible cryptos that we use in DeFi and know and love. It's pretty interesting because it would open up a lot of space for institutional lenders or high net worth individuals to create potential revenue from their holdings or even borrow against it. This would be an interesting application for DAOs or any companies with NFTs on their balance sheets. It's just kind of opening a new way of leverage in this emerging and immersive digital economy. Yeah, definitely. Especially with DAOs, that, that would be really interesting to be able to create like a specific NFT DAO. Um, that would be quite something for sure. Moving on to the next thing here, we're going to be talking not so much about specific uh, corporations, specific projects, networks, but we're now going to be talking about the SEC, Security and Exchange Commission. They recently rejected Cryptoins, or Cryptoin, I believe is how you say it. I don't exactly know. They have a spot Bitcoin ETF proposal that they um, tried to put through the SEC. And unfortunately, uh, the decision was around five weeks. But after that five weeks, they were unfortunately denied. Um, obviously, we do already have Bitcoin ETFs. We have two Bitcoin futures ETFs. This one's a spot, so it'd be a little bit different. Futures would be basically a contract. You're not actually owning the underlying asset of Bitcoin, whereas the spot would obviously be the underlying asset of Bitcoin. So there's definitely a, a bit of a difference there. And the two Bitcoin futures that we are already able to trade right now that is within the market would be the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF, which is the ticker symbol BITO, B-I-T-O, and the uh, Valreich Bitcoin Strategy ETF, which is BTF. And those both began trading in October. So investors, institutional players are able to already gain exposure for the price action of Bitcoin. But spot is definitely very different from the futures. And kind of the reason why it was unable to pass is the SEC chair, Gary Gensler, indicated that his preference is for Bitcoin futures instead of the underlying spot ETF that was presented by the uh, new firm that initially tried to go for the spot uh, ETF. So unfortunately, they weren't unable to do it. Obviously, I'm sure there will be more that attempt to push through a spot Bitcoin ETF uh, to the open market. So people are actually able to purchase the spot instead of just the futures. But as of right now, it has not passed. 
Yeah, I think Gary Gensler is pretty... He's the SEC chairman right now, and I think he's exerting a high level of power over the regulatory or the regulatory concerns and interests when it comes to these Bitcoin ETFs. And it seems like he is pretty adamant that, hey, we're just going to have a futures one and spot ones are continuously being denied. That being said, in Canada, I believe Fidelity created, applied, and there it's now trading a spot ETF for Bitcoin, but it's trading on the TSX. And so although it is a second market or a secondary market relative to the major U.S. ones, it does kind of set legal precedent as, hey, these instruments have a place within our financial ecosystems. And so to move on to the next story from the multinational perspective, there was a recent study that came and showed Pakistanis have $20 billion in crypto assets. And I think part of the reason why this is important is because their neighbor, India, has been very hot and cold with how crypto is being regulated. It feels like every week there's like India crypto FUD, where it's like crypto banned, crypto allowed for payments, crypto banned. And it just goes back and forth and it feels like A, half of it's probably fake news. B, do they even really talk about crypto this much? D, they can definitely still buy crypto if they want to. You know, like it just seems like it's people fishing for headlines, I guess you could say. Um, But this study was interesting because it was done by, I guess you could call it a trustful third party that ranked Pakistan as the third highest in terms of index score within kind of those Eastern Asian countries behind Vietnam and India, uh, whereas the value of on-chain crypto transmitted, uh, retail value transferred from peer to peer and trade volume. Kind of interesting metrics that shows Pakistan is active on the blockchain. uh, And ultimately, I guess we are seeing adoption just like outside of North America. I feel like North America is where we focus the most on because we have conglomerates like crypto.com buying the Staples Center and stuff like that that really makes us just think about Canada and the U.S., more so just the U.S. really. Um, But we are seeing crypto being used internationally. Yeah, definitely. And kind of sticking with the, I guess you could say central bank digital currency or the Uh, countries that are adopting crypto. Um, This will lead on to the next story very well. The governor of Pakistan's state bank actually stated that the bank is looking to possibly get into the central bank digital currency realm. And one country that has been really pushing its boundaries and adopting this significantly, you're going to think I'm going to say China, but it's actually Russia. Uh, We have been seeing some news stories coming in from Russia that uh, state that they are pushing through and adopting the central bank digital currency. But uh, when I did read this news story, I was pretty surprised because they are far ahead uh, compared to what I was expecting them to be at. I thought China was going to be the leader or one of the top leaders in the central bank digital currency, and they are. They're already implementing it. People are using it, so that definitely makes sense. But look at the news here from Russia's side. The CBR, which is the central bank of Russia, uh, already has been working to develop a cryptocurrency or central bank digital currency, and it is now complete. Their first digital ruble, which is the nation's currency, and the authorities of Russia are planning to pilot the operation uh, for the cryptocurrency, the central bank digital currency, after the holidays in January. So they're just behind China in terms of the actual implementation of it, because China already has some users and some citizens 
interacting with it. They actually gave away some money for free to citizens for them to use within the economy. So that's pretty interesting. And they said that a dozen Russian banks will participate in the first of several stages for the trials that will continue throughout 2022 and earlier in December. Bank of Russell Bank of Russia explained that it will invite credit organizations and also carry out consumer-to-consumer -consumer operations during the first stage. The federal treasury, along with the financial inter intermediaries, will join in on the second stage when the transactions between private individuals and corporate entities will be tested. So they are really looking to implement this within the entire economy and create a incentive to almost hold or want ru uh, rubles, uh, which is pretty interesting. Um, I believe that's their nation. I just I just said it, but anyways, uh, it, it's almost like a technological race at this point because throughout history, it's just always been the case that the country that has the highest level of domination of transportation, that country is going to have the world reserve currency. But it kind of seems like we're shifting now to an almost technological race of central bank digital currencies, where the more use cases a central bank digital currency has, the more likely it will get adopted. So uh, Russia is definitely looking to lead the way, China's leading the way, US does seem like they are trying, but we are seeing the east side uh, become heavily invested in the central bank digital currency side of things for sure. And beside Russian citizens, uh, the bank also plans to allow non-residents, like everyone outside of Russia, to also open digital ruble wallets and use the cryptocurrency to convert to foreign fiat. So uh, if they have very reduced rates, that would be awesome. If people are able to transact Russian rubles from one place to another, and then kind of like skip the intermediary between the financial institutions. That would also help a lot of people cut fees uh, when they are transacting money worldwide. So definitely some big things to come. I think it's going to be more adopted compared to China because they're very enclosed and they like to control things where obviously Russia likes to as well. But I'd say from just my personal opinion, they're a little bit more... Um, not easygoing, I can't say that about Mr. Putin, but uh, a little bit more, a little bit transparent. I don't really know what the right word is, but uh, I mean, they the allow- that they're letting external people even use their CBDC wallet, I guess could say that they are being a bit more progressive with their tech and be like, hey, that's a good word. we're experimenting, fuck it, let's see what happens, run it up. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Putin's getting wild. And so I think on that note is a great place to finish the 75th episode. Thank you for tuning in. We will be having these on a regular basis. And I think the next one we could even talk about PCC, our crypto coming out. Uh, we got a lot to share about that one, but for now we'll end it there.